All right, go ahead and please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 41 through 44. That is Mark 12, 41 through 44. Uh, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. And this morning we come to the end of chapter 12. Uh, and we will be in a text that is commonly referred to as the story of the widow's mites. Right? And if you mites, M-I-T-E-S. If you read the King James Version of the Bible, uh, the word mites is used to refer to these small coins we're going to read about. Um, we're looking at a passage today that has to do with a poor widow's donation that she gave at the temple and what Jesus had to say about it. Now, the text before us speaks of how Jesus, um, again, as I just said, sees a poor widow give a negligible amount of money to God at the temple. That day, she basically gave nothing uh, with regard to monetary value, but our Lord Jesus saw something more. He saw something in that woman and in her gift that he viewed as worthy of comment, uh, worthy of teaching his disciples. While her financial offering wasn't worth much, nevertheless, Jesus saw something quite valuable in it. And what he said about that woman and her giving has been recorded for our instruction, for our benefit. This text reveals something to us of the mind of Christ, which is the mind of God. And so we would do well to listen, take heed, and obey what we see in the scriptures. The, the text before us is, is really, really simple. Um, but it's also very challenging, I think. Uh, it has to do with giving. And when I say giving, I mean money, right? It has to do with giving, and so for a lot of us in the 21st century, this is a challenging thing. Um, it has to do with giving money to the Lord as an act of worship, but it has to do with more than just giving money. I'm not trying to downplay the importance of that. It has to do with more than that. It has to do with the heart posture that God delights in. So this text teaches us many useful lessons, and I intend to draw four of them, uh, try to draw out four of them for you this morning, and I'm, I'm sure there are more. Uh, two of them will have to do with money and giving, and that absolutely cannot be denied from the text. But two of them go even deeper, I think. And they teach us that God sees us and that God wants all of us. That is all of what we are is to be given to him in faith and love and praise. And the motivation for our giving ourselves and our stuff and our souls is Jesus Christ who is the great giver who gave himself up for us all. So may God bless us today as we consider his word. And with that said, if you wouldn't are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44. And he, that is Jesus, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy God, we come before you now as beggars. We have nothing and we are nothing. We have no merit of our own to set before you that would obligate you to hear us, let alone help us. And so we plead the merits of your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as the ground for your hearing and having mercy and helping us. Please, God, for his sake, help us to understand, believe, and apply your word to our hearts and lives. By your spirit, please awaken us this morning to the text of scripture and set it home to our souls. Teach us by your word and by your spirit so that you might be glorified in us. And grant, please, that we would not set this text on a shelf, but that we would leave here different than we came in, having been transformed by the almighty God who speaks and works through his word. We ask for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Right. So let's go ahead and dive in. First, we'll consider the setting of our text. 
Uh, it's still Tuesday of Passion Week in Mark's Gospel. This is a very long day, the longest day that Mark records in his Gospel, um, or at least one of them. Jesus and his disciples have been in the temple complex all day long, probably in the court of the Gentiles. That would be the outermost court in the temple. Um, uh, and, and Jesus has been teaching and debating with the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and the Sadducees. He's been questioned, he's been mocked, and he's given answers to these questions and, and, and fits of mockery that instruct those, the faithful who may be listening, uh, such as us, and also silences his opposition. And now he's finished with his public ministry. He's, he's, he's done. After talking about the hypocrisy of the scribes, He's done with public ministry. He will no longer, at any real length, address the crowds anymore. His ministry now, for the rest of Mark's gospel, will shift inward toward his disciples to instruct and prepare them for the work that they'll be commissioned to do after his death and resurrection. So there's, there's a bit of a transition here. And so after a long day of public debate, we read this, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many people, rather many rich people, put in large sums. So Jesus sits down across from the treasury in the temple. Um, now ancient Jewish documents tell us that the offering boxes were kept in the court of women. So this would be the second court, right, right closer, to, uh, closer to the middle of the temple than the court of the Gentiles. And the, again, the offering boxes were kept in the court of women. Now, that area was not exclusively for women, but what that means is women could not go any further into the temple than that. The Gentiles could not go any further than the court of the Gentiles. The women could not go any further than the court of the women. And the court of men, men could not, unless they were priests, come any further than the court of men. So in this area, men, women, and children could come into the court of women. And so it makes sense this is where the offering boxes would be kept. Right, for faithful Jewish men and women to come and give offerings. Now, a brief word about these offering boxes. Uh, once again, ancient Jewish documents tell us that there were 13 shofar-shaped boxes, that is, ram's horn-shaped boxes um, or receptacles in the court of women. And, and all of them were marked according to the different kinds of monetary offerings that the Old Testament law commanded the Jews to give to the Lord, their tithes, uh, the money you would give to the temple as part of the yearly temple tax, what you would give uh, whenever you had a son be born, right? All these different Old Testament things. Uh, they were all designated, and I think that I read that six of them were marked for free will offerings, right? And that those are offerings where you just want to give to the Lord out of praise and thanksgiving for his goodness to you. And these offering boxes were emptied into the temple treasury uh, where they would then be distributed according to the needs of the temple, the priests, and the poor, so here Jesus sits in the court of women, watching people at the treasury. He watches, and he sees. He sees people putting their money into the treasury. He sees the rich putting in large sums of money, large amounts of money. And this tells us that, right, we, we infer this, that the act of giving money to the temple was public. It was something of a public act. Uh, a priest was most likely involved for much of it. Uh, and it probably, to one degree or another, uh, was impossible to avoid being seen whenever you gave. Again, Jesus is watching these people do this. And the rich are there. Now, the, the rich certainly would have stuck out to everyone assembled there. And let me explain why. They don't have paper money back then. They don't have checks. Right? All they have are precious metals and coins. That's their currency. And they would be dropped into an offering box. And from what I understand, as, as they were shaped like a ram's horn, uh, the thin end, like on a trumpet, that would have been the top of the receptacle. And I'm sure they were larger than like an actual ram's horn or you couldn't fit much money in there. But they were shaped like it. So the, the small end would be on the top. So you have to drop them in and it's coins. What, why am I telling you this? This would have made noise. You know, dropped it in. You're dropping metal coins on top of other metal coins that are in there, right? Uh, if you're like me, if you've ever been a cashier and dropped a till, Anyone ever, some of you are grinning. Some of you have done this. It's quite loud. All the chains going all over the place. It's similar to that, I would imagine. This would have made noise. Uh, again, you can imagine the loud clanking and clanging as money dropped into the coffers, especially the heavy 
and larger coins and large amounts given by the rich. And this would probably have taken some time to do. Right? This would have taken some time to do. You're putting it into this receptacle. If this rich person is giving, there would probably be multiple bags of money, multiple bags of coins. So here's a picture of the rich going into the temple. Right? They would have been well-dressed men, like today. Um, you'd probably be able to guess that they were rich by how they dressed. Right? Fine clothing and how they carried themselves. Sometimes rich people carry themselves the way that the rest of us peasants don't. Anyway, I could say some things. I won't. Um, <laughs> how they carried themselves and how they dressed. And, and they would have brought bags of money, probably multiple bags of money, possibly for the super rich, uh, having one or more servants carrying the bags of coins for them to give to the temple. This would have been a very public display. And I would imagine, uh, again, uh, th- when a rich man came in to give, people would have noticed, right? Oh, my Look at all that money. I've never seen that much money before, especially if you're a a peasant in Israel at that time. I've never seen this much money. Uh, Listen to all that noise. Look at those bags. This would have been something to behold. Um, You know, sometimes I was thinking about this as I was writing this. You ever been at a cash register and a guy pulls out just a wad of money? Like Mark Stiltner, maybe? (laughs) Pulls out just a ton of money out of his pocket. And you ever seen people, like, they look and then, like, they try to, like, turn their heads, like, so no one thinks they're, like, eyeballing this guy's money? I've done that. Right, so we do that with paper money. Imagine how much more for coins, right? And again, this is precious metals, possibly gold, right? So you get the idea. Imagine everyone would have noticed. And Jesus sees them. And I want to be clear, they are not necessarily condemned in this text, right? God commands everyone in Israel to give, right? So it was good that the rich were giving large amounts. They're not necessarily being chastised for that, but Jesus notices something else, and he latches onto it. It grips him, and really he notices someone else. He sees a poor widow at the treasury. Verse 42, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. This woman is described as a poor widow. Um, I don't know if this makes that much of a difference, but the Greek literally would be rendered the widow poor. It sounds like Mark's highlighting this. He's highlighting her poverty. So this woman... This isn't run-of-the-mill poverty. The word is stronger. She's not merely part of the peasant class of which Jesus would have been a part of. Which, think about that for a moment. The king of kings is in the peasant class as he walks the earth. But this woman is worse than that. She's dirt poor. She has nothing. She is a very poor widow. And again, a widow. That means she has no one to take care of her. Her husband is dead. And... I can't help but to think that since she's a widow and she's this poor, that either she had no sons or had no sons-in-law, because that's who would take care of you if your husband died. She either had none or she had been forgotten by them. Right? No one's honoring their parents, taking care of them in their old age. She probably lived off of a daily amount given to her by the synagogue or the temple if they were operating the way they should have. And remember, Jesus has went on about how these people are thieves, the religious rulers of Israel. So if the temple or synagogues are operating the way they should, then she maybe would get a daily stipend. Just like the church is commanded, actually, if there are widows among us who cannot take care of themselves, the church is actually supposed to come together and take care of the poor among us. So maybe she has a little stipend each day, or perhaps she was a beggar. Either way, she is the widow poor. And you could probably tell that she was poor by the way she dressed, right? This, this is no shock to us. No doubt she had shabby and ragged clothing. And Jesus knows that she's a widow. How? I don't know. I think this is probably one of those instances of knowledge being communicated from his divine nature to his human nature. But he knows that her husband's dead. And the text says that she came and put in two small copper coins. This is kind of important. Not kind of important. This is actually really important. In the Greek, it's two lepta. Those are the coins, lepta, L-E-P-T-A. These are tiny coins. They're smaller than our dimes, and they weren't made out of gold. They were copper. They were of very little value. The Greek here literally reads, two lepta, which make a, I think I'm pronouncing this correctly, quadrantes. Now, a quadrantes was a Roman coin that was worth about 164th of a denarius. 
and a denarius was a day's wage for a laborer. That's not a crazy huge amount of money. This is a day laborer's wage. She gives two coins. That's not the case. He's not a fool. He has eyes. He knows that she's actually given the least with regard to raw financial value, but Jesus counts differently. One commentator put it this way, Jesus does not count, he weighs. And I think that's right. He doesn't count, he weighs things. And I think that's right because he explains himself in the next verse. Verse 44 starts with the word for. That's an explanatory word. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This poor woman gave the most, even though she gave the least. And that's because after she gave, there was nothing left. After she gave, there was nothing left. She gave everything when she gave those two little coins. She held nothing back, and she, in doing so, I don't know if you catch this or not, she commits herself to the care of God. She, she probably received a little bit of money, again, as I said, she probably received a little bit of money for food each day from the charity of others, and that is what she gave. And she had two coins. Would anyone have faulted her for keeping one? Maybe she could buy a tiny, small piece of bread for one lepta, maybe. But she gives both of them. She has nothing remaining. The rich, on the other hand, while they gave more, it actually cost them less. When they were done giving their large amounts, they still had much left over. They remained rich. There was no real sacrifice. They gave what they could spare to give. But the widow gave it all to the Lord. Since she gave all that she had to live on, you could say that that day she gave her life. And this, Jesus says, is more than all the rich gave put together. One commentator put it this way. I thought this was a beautiful way to sum this up. The other gifts in the treasury that day made a lot of noise as they jingled into the receptacles, but the widow's mites were heard in heaven. I think that's exactly right. She gave little because that's all she had. But Jesus took notice. He saw her and he commended her for what he calls great generosity, even though she only gave $2. So this text is short. Some of you are probably thinking we're going to get out of here early. That's a 20-minute sermon. Is this R.C. Sproul? The answer is no. <laughs> I'm not that smart, and I talk way more than him. This text is short, and it's really simple. We've just walked through it. Most of the commentaries only devote a couple of pages to explaining these four short verses. And I think we'd all agree, reading the text, it's not hard to understand. It's quite plain. You don't need a whole lot of historical knowledge to understand even the ins and outs of this text, but there are many lessons for us to learn from it. There are many things to be gleaned from this simple narrative, and I just want to point four of them out this morning. The first lesson that we learn from this narrative is that God sees. He sees. Jesus watched the woman. He was a people watcher. Read the Gospels and, and check that out, how many times Jesus is watching people or he's listening to people. And he watched actions and hearts together. Maybe you've missed this in the brief reading that we did. The, the widow and those in the temple had no idea that the Lord of glory was watching them. They had no idea. The widow had no idea that the king of kings was watching her. She had no idea that what she was doing was being recorded and would serve to glorify God for all time. She had no idea. But nevertheless, Jesus saw. And when Jesus sees, that is, God sees. For Jesus is God. Brothers and sisters, I was struck with this as I was teaching my daughter the catechism questions. Can you see God? No, I cannot. But God sees me. God sees me. Brothers and sisters, I hope that you have not forgotten that very simple piece of theology. God watches us at all times. He sees every single thing that we do. Let me read Psalm 139, verses 7 through 12. King David wrote this. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that is the grave, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. David says, where can I go and you're not there? Where can I go and you not see me? And by the way, David's not trying to get away from God. This is not a Jonah thing. David is taking delight in this. Wherever I go, there he is. Nothing is hidden from God. He sees you. He sees all things. He knows all things. He, nothing escapes him. Many things escape us, but nothing escapes him. The all-seeing eye of the Lord is on all things. He doesn't sleep nor slumber. Darkness is light to him, and his eye is always on us. He sees the actions that no one else sees. I like this phrase, there is no door closed to him. No door is closed to him. There is nowhere that he is not, not even in hell. God is there, executing his wrath. There is nowhere that he is not. What a blessing. Sincerely, some of you are maybe, this makes you nervous, this thought, and in some degree as sinners, this does make us nervous that there's nothing that God does not see. But what a blessing it is to know this for those who love and fear the Lord. He sees all that we do out of love for him. He sees what no one else sees. He sees you praying. Right? And uh, to, to sound like some of my upbringing, when you're in your prayer closets, he sees you praying. No one else sees you, but he sees you. He sees you in the word. He sees you repenting in your heart. He sees you making amends with those you've wronged. He sees you believing and looking to Christ. He sees your generosity that is done behind closed doors. He sees your good deeds done for his glory. He sees all the behind the scene things that the world will never see. And he takes note of them in his book. And one day, on that great day, all will be revealed to the praise of his glorious name and the vindication of his saints. What the world may think to be foolish or weakness or of no real account, our God sees and he takes note of. I'm not trying to make this sermon about me, but re I recently had people attacking my reputation to some small degree, and it really bothered me. <laughs> Pray for me, because I care what people think too much. Some of you think that I don't care what people think, but I actually do. Pray for me that I really wouldn't care. <laughs> and I looked at my wife, and I said, they don't know. Like, but they don't know that that's not true. Right? They don't know that I love people, and they don't know that I actually try to help people regularly. It's my job. I try to help people. And my wife looked at me, and she said, God knows. What a rebuke. What, what a sweet, gentle rebuke that I received that day. God knows. Or for our purposes this morning, God sees. They don't, but he does. That's a good word. Amen. The Lord sees his saints. He sees what we do for him and for his glory whenever no one else sees. And he will remember, just like Jesus and the widow that day. But likewise, I must say this. Know this, if we have an unconverted person among us, God likewise sees the wicked. Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Again, he sees. He sees the wickedness of the unbelieving. What, as much of a comfort as this is to those who have faith in Christ, what a terror it is for the unbeliever to know that their deeds are seen by the terrible and awful judge of all mankind. What a thought. All the sin, all the unbelief, all the scorned proclamations of the gospel, all the wasted opportunities, all the wasted time and blessings of God, all the evil, God sees it all. Children, please hear me. He sees if you're an unbeliever. He sees all that you do. You must trust in Christ. Only Christ can take away your sins. Because what, and you must trust in him because one day there will be a reckoning with God. And those who are outside of Christ will be condemned. Please take note, all of us. 
believer and unbeliever, God sees all things, whether good or bad. And while many people do not realize or do not believe that God is watching, just like the people in the temple did not realize that the Lord Jesus was watching, nevertheless, he is. He sees, and nothing is hidden. But not only does God see what we do, equally importantly, this text shows us that God sees why we do it. He sees and evaluates our hearts. I know I preached on this a couple of weeks ago when I talked about religious hypocrisy, but let me hit the positive side of this. Notice here, and I want to prove that I believe the text is teaching us this, the widow in our text was commended by the Lord Jesus for what she gave. There's no hint of rebuke here. Uh, the, the, The commendation reveals to us that she must have been sincere and worshipful in her giving. She wasn't doing this for show. She wasn't doing this to be seen and praised by others. Right? And so she was giving from a heart that loved God. And Jesus could see that. God saw. And so God praised her for it. Now compare this to the context of the chapter we find ourselves in. What, what came just before it? Jesus' denunciation of the scribes who did everything in order to be seen by others but do not love God. So that's what we just saw in the text right above this. And then, boom, the scene shifts to the praise of this poor widow who gave all and was seen by no one but Christ. I think that's the contrast that we're meant to see here. And we're meant to be reminded that God sees the intents of our hearts. He sees what we do and why we do it. He knows if we're giving, serving, studying, praying, or whatever it might be, and he knows whether or not we're doing it for his praise or for ours. And if nothing else, this text shows us that God loves the heart that loves him. And no, I'm I'm not preaching legalism here. We love because he first loved us. But know this, the heart that loves him, he loves. Jesus commended this widow because what she did, she did for God's glory. Because even though she only had two small coins, she wanted to give something back to the Lord, even though it was incredibly small. And God loved it. And God loved her. Did you hear that? God loves the heart that loves him. He delights in the one who delights in him. The human heart that no man can see, God sees And those who love him, he loves as well. Christian, please be encouraged. God sees your heart. And you say, ah, I don't want anyone to see my heart, right? The heart of man is sick, right? Jeremiah 17, I believe. Yes, that's true. But you have a new one, don't you? That he put there by sovereign grace. He sees your heart. And though you do indeed have sin still dwelling in your members that you wage war against daily, nevertheless, God loves you. Though your gifts are very small and insignificant when compared to the majesty of God, he nevertheless delights in them. Why? Why would the almighty king delight in your small gift? Because he knows why you gave it. Because he knows why you gave it. Because he knows that you love him. And he knows that you love him because he knows that he put a new and living heart within you. Let me give you an illustration here. Just like an earthly father loves the worthless drawing of his daughter. My daughter, her drawings are worthless to all of you. They're not to me. I promise they're not. I saved them. I saved too many of them. Just like an earthly father loves the worthless drawing of his daughter because he loves his daughter, so also God delights in our works done to glorify him because he loves us and knows that we love him. Be encouraged, Christian. God sees what you do, and he sees why you do it. A second lesson that this text teaches us is a lesson in what God counts as true giving. I wanted to encourage you first with that one because this one hurts a little more. What does God count as valuable giving? Verse 44, they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. It's not about raw amounts given. As I said earlier, God does not count. He weighs. That is, true giving 
Giving that is precious in God's sight is giving that has to do with sacrifice. True giving has to do with what is left over after we give to the Lord. Or to put it in the form of a question, when you give, ask yourself this, did the giving actually cost you anything? Brothers and sisters, giving should cost us something. It should cost all of us something if it's true giving. And I want to be clear, I, I am talking about money right now. I am. Right? Not this nebulous thing, this text has to do with money. If we give from what we will not miss, it's not truly giving. Hear me, because this is what so many professing Christians do. If we settle all of our worldly affairs first and merely give God whatever we have left over after we've done all that we wanted to do, that's not true giving. If we give only when we have a great surplus, that's not true giving. If we say, I will put off my giving until I get out of this debt situation, and I'm... Bear with me. We'll get to that. But if you say, I will give only whenever I've figured out this debt situation, that's not true giving. God does not esteem that. Hear me. The pagans can do that. And the pagans do that. They, they do. Right? The godless rich do this all the time. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm not glad that, that the godless rich give to charity. That, that's good. But consider the, the charities that the super wealthy give to. Right? Like, the world applauds because some guy who makes $50 million a year gave $100,000 to cancer research. It's like, that's great, $100,000. Like, that's awesome. You made $50 million last year. That didn't cost you anything. It didn't. I remember reading a thing. It was like Bernie Sanders gave away like one point some million dollars, and people were praising him for it, and it was like 2% of his income. <laughs> I'm sorry, maybe I'm, I'm exaggerating that, but it was like a 2% of his income, and it was so many hundreds of thousands of dollars or something, and people were like clapping. It was like, it cost him nothing to give that away. Socialism, ladies and gentlemen. But anyhow, that's not true. That is not true generosity according to God. To one degree or another, as God impresses upon each one of us by his spirit, our giving should be sacrificial. There should be things that we must deny ourselves because of our giving. That's what it means for it to be a sacrifice. Giving should be part of our budget, not an afterthought at the end of the month or week. God deserves the first fruits of our labors. After all, he is the one who gave the wealth to begin with. Is that not the principle of our giving? He gave to me, and now he commands that I give some back. Imagine how ungrateful that you would have to be if I walked up to you. I've talked to my sister about this uh, when we've had idle time at the store. And I walked up to you and I said, here is $100,000. And then five minutes later, I said, hey, can I have 10 of that back? And you said, no. How ungrateful would you be? I just gave you $100,000. Can I have 10000 back? No way. Are you serious? You would have none of it if had I not given it to you in the first place. And yet, how many rob God? There should be things that we have to deny ourselves. And notice this. Maybe you're sitting here going, well, like, I don't have a whole lot of money, so I guess I get off scot-free. No, even the poor ought to give something. Was this woman scolded? No, she wasn't scolded. Now listen, she certainly went to the extreme by giving all that she had. And I am not saying that God calls all of us to do that. What is going to be sacrificial giving for some is going to be chump change for others. That's just how it works. A hundred bucks means a lot more to someone who makes 20 grand a year than someone who makes 150 grand a year, right? I'm not saying that God calls all of us to give all of our money away, but nevertheless, this poor woman was commended by Christ for giving what she gave, and she was poor. So as I'll say again in the next point, even if you can only give very little, give anyway. Nobody in the church has an excuse unless you literally have nothing. And as I look around at all of us, that is not true of any of us here. 
Again, our giving should cost us something. But so often, Christians rob God by giving him nothing or by spending all of their money on themselves and their worldly comforts and making generosity toward the Lord an afterthought. But I would put this to you. Doesn't giving teach us and train us? It teaches us about what matters, doesn't it? As you give to the ministries of the church, as you give maybe to even parachurch ministries, are you not saying this, this eternal stuff, this work that's being done is more important Is giving not training you to think about eternity? Giving also teaches us that everything that we have actually belongs to God in the first place. So as I give back to him, I'm giving back with a recognition that he gave it to me first. Giving also teaches us that we are merely stewards of what God has given us. It's not mine. The Bible says the world and everything in it belongs to the Lord. So I'm just a steward over this piece of wealth that he's given me, and he's given it to me that I might spend it well and be generous toward others and the work of the church as well as having my needs met. Giving teaches us to love our neighbors and help them. Giving teaches us to live for eternity and not merely for this present age. And by teaching us these things, acts of sacrificial giving actually to sound like a puritan for a moment they wean us from our addiction to this world how giving causes you to get rid of it and live with an open hand god is teaching us to live open-handedly and rely upon his provision in the service of others and his cause as he calls us to give and this text actually reminds us of another passage where jesus spoke about money and hearts Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This text hit me like a lightning bolt years ago. Your money reveals where your heart is. Brothers and sisters, the checkbook, Jesus says, reveals the soul at the end of the day. And I read a commentator said this, while many things in religion can be faked to some degree, the checkbook does not lie. To paraphrase ACDC, money talks. You're welcome. But it's true. The checkbook does not lie. You can fake many things in religion, but your checkbook does not lie. A brief point of application here. Do you need to increase your giving? Do I? I've been, I've been thinking about this all week. Do you need to increase your giving? Do I need to? Do you need to increase your giving to this church or to worthy ministries outside of this congregation? If you need some pointers, I, I will tell you of many worthy ministries that you can give to. Do you need to increase your giving to the poor amongst us here at CRBC? Maybe you see someone that you know is struggling and you can help them. Or maybe the, the poor that you see and interact with throughout the week. Is your giving sacrificial? That is the question that you must answer. And remember this, God knows how we give too. But we covered this in the first point. Remember the words of Paul, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. He sees whether we give cheerfully or coldly, and he wants our hearts. So if I could tell you, as one of my old pastors said to me, because... Greed is something that I still have to repent of. Pray that God would change your heart and make you generous. And listen, before the heart change comes, start doing it. Sometimes the change comes through the doing as you submit yourself to the command of God. And remember this, just I want to say this so I don't sound like a televangelist. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't. But by commanding you to give, he is inviting you to participate in his work. He can do it without your money. Right? He, he raises people from the dead in the Bible. He can make the sun stand still. He doesn't need your money. But he commands you to do it so that you might participate with him. What a privilege. God would, part, would invite a sinner to participate in his work. That's amazing. A third lesson that this text teaches us, and this is meant to encourage you, God is pleased to receive little from those who have little. Now, don't get me wrong. God is also pleased to receive much from those who have much. But God, Christ, 
was pleased with the two little coins that the widow gave, and he commended her. The point is this. God does not despise or think little of the little you can give if that is all you have. Rather, he delights in it. Just like Jesus praised this widow, God smiles upon the small gifts of the small. So, so I don't know if this is a problem amongst us, but I, I must say this. Some people may be ashamed to offer their little to the Lord because they think he's going to scoff at it, but that could not be further from the truth. He is pleased to take a small amount from a heart that loves him. Christian, please be encouraged by this. God is your father. He will never say that's not good enough so long as it's given with a heart that wants to praise him and show that he is worthy. Our giving to God is about worship to him, not dollar amounts. He knows, he sees, he sees the heart, and the heart that loves him will make the small gift weigh heavy in his eyes. Better is a little with true faith and love and piety than much with no heart from, for God. But let me expand this beyond money because I think this is a principle that should actually encourage all of us because I talk to you guys about this and you say, I, I don't know stuff. I'm not very good at many things, right? You think that you have very little to offer. Let, let, me, let, me, just, let me broaden this out. Maybe you don't have much time to give to the ministries of the church because your life is full of biblical priorities. I'm looking at you, moms. Your life, your life is full of biblical priorities that you have to take care of. Biblical responsibilities. And so you can only give little time to serve and meet with your fellow Christians to encourage them. Or, or, or maybe you don't have a ton of skills. Maybe you don't have a ton of skills to employ in the service of Christ's cause and the building up of his church. And so while you want to help, it's limited what you can do. Or, or, or maybe you don't have a ton of Bible knowledge. This is the one that I hear. I don't know the Bible that well, and I can't really teach anyone anything, and I kind of don't know what to say to people or how to give counsel to them. And so you can only give very little counsel and very little help in helping people to understand the Word of God. Maybe you have very little. But know this, God is pleased to have it. He's pleased to have it. He will not think little of you giving it. He will not think little of you doing what you can in service to him and his people. Why? Again, because he sees your heart and your devotion for him in giving the little that you have. He sees your heart and none of it's little in his sight. Be encouraged, Christian. He will receive your gift and he can do great things with a small gift. A brief thing here. I once had a babe in Christ ask me a question because he was seeking knowledge and he rebuked me so hard on accident <laughs> that I've never forgotten it. He said, hey, if the Bible says this, why is it okay that you do that? He's like, I figured there was some kind of biblical explanation you could give me to justify what you did and there was none. Using his little wanting to know more, God changed me. God can take small and do much with it. Now we come to the fourth and final lesson we learn from this text. And I think it's the ultimate lesson. I believe that this widow is a lesson to Christ's disciples about discipleship. Notice in verse 43, Jesus calls his disciples to himself and points the widow out to them. He even introduces this teaching with, truly I say to you. This is a big deal. Truly I say to you. He wants us to remember this teaching. All of the words of Christ are important. Some are more important than others. Usually you can tell because he introduces it. Truly, I say to you, this is big. He wants us to remember this. He wants us to ponder, on, ponder what happened here. He wants us to learn from this woman's example. And I think that more than money is to be learned from her. Not less, but more. And among other things that we've seen, this woman reveals to us what discipleship looks like. What do I mean? She gave everything to God. Verse 44 tells us that she has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. You could paraphrase this by saying she gave her life. 
When she gave that money, she gave her life. She didn't have anything left. In a sense, she gave her life to God. She gave everything that she had in service to him, and she did so because she loved him. She bet everything on God to be her God and to have mercy on her as she served him. Is this not a fitting picture of what it means to be a disciple? In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Is the widow not a picture of this? She denied herself all that she had in order to serve the Lord. And this is what Jesus demands of us. That we come to an end of ourselves and go after him in faith, abandoning everything else, trusting solely in him. Discipleship is when we bet everything on Christ. We hold nothing back. There are no more reserves of self-righteousness to try to save ourselves with. We have no backup plan. Jesus is not, we're not hedging our bets on Christ where we're looking to other things as well. Like, well, if Jesus doesn't work, then no. You say, I have nothing but him. Where we cast ourselves upon the mercy of God found in Christ to save sinners where we become totally dependent upon him and his righteousness and cry out, thou must save and thou alone. Discipleship is where we, in faith, surrender ourselves to Christ in every regard, daily submitting to his lordship, recognizing that he is not only the Lord of lords, but he is my Lord, where we hold nothing back, where no part of our lives are consciously held back from his lordship, where we follow him wherever he might lead us, no matter what the hardship, no matter what the cost, where all that we are is rendered to God in Christ. And we do so because we love him, because he first loved us, because we esteem him as worthy beyond all comparison. Nothing less will do. Hear me, anything less than that is not true discipleship. Anything less than that is a sham religion. Hear me, God may not call all of us to give away every cent that we have. I believe he calls very few people to do that. But every disciple is called to, in faith, put everything that we are and everything that we have at his disposal. Do with me what you will. That's discipleship. It's yours. If you let me keep it, awesome. If you don't, great. It's yours. I'm yours. And we do so because we've seen him with the eye of faith and he is lovely to us. That's discipleship. So just a, a, a brief word here. Christian, are you holding anything back from him? I'm not just talking about money. Are you holding anything back from him? Anything that you're aware of? Consider that deeply today. Spend your Lord's day well. Ask yourself that question. Am I holding something back from him? Whether it's my money, my entertainment choices, the way that I spend my time, the way that I raise my children, whatever it might be, ask yourself, am I holding something back from his lordship? Because discipleship means you're all in and you give it all to him. And remember that he offers you something better than anything you might hold on to in this world. And now I come to one final point, and I've touched on it, all, on it already, but this is the glory of it all, and this should make us all very excited. Our motivation for this, right? Always, why? Why? Why should I do this? That's always my question. Maybe I'm a stubborn rebel. I don't know. But why should I do this? Our motivation for giving our stuff and ourselves to God is Christ Jesus himself. He is the motivation. He is the great capital E example. More than that, he himself is the great giver. Call him that. He is the great giver. He gave himself up for us in order that we might have all in him. He gave perfect obedience to God in our place that we might have his righteousness credited to our account. He gave himself to covenantal obedience that it might become our obedience. He gave himself over to divine justice on a cross that we might be spared the wrath of God for our sins. He gave himself to become sin for us that in him we might be cleansed of our sins and trespasses. He gave his life on a tree that we might eat of the tree of life through faith in him. He gave his life for us that we might live in him. Praise God. 
As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know, you know this, Christian, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. What has he done? What is this unmerited favor? What is this grace? That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. He left the riches of glory in heaven to come to earth, become poor for us, that by his life, death, and resurrection, we might become spiritually rich through faith in him. So that by his poverty and suffering, we might receive life and salvation and every good thing in him. He gave all that we might have all through him. That, brothers and sisters, is why we give. Our most holy faith is founded upon the great giver, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave all for us. So then I ask you, how can we not give in return? How can we not give ourselves to him? And how could we not give our stuff and ourselves to his cause, his church, his people, his will? It only makes sense, doesn't it? It only makes sense. He gave, so we give. To quote Jesus, freely you have received, freely give. So then, my dear brothers and sisters, in conclusion, give. Give yourself, your stuff, and your soul to God. And give it all as a sacrifice of praise to the one who has given all things to you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you. Forgiving your son. Holy God, you are the great giver. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are the great giver. Father, you gave your son, Jesus, you gave your life. Spirit, you gave us life. Everything that we have has come from you as a gift. Temporally, physically, spiritually, everything we have, we have nothing. God, I pray that you would help us to see that and that everything we have comes from you, that we might be changed. Have mercy on us. And not just, not just to help us give more financially, God, if that be the case, put that in our hearts. If there are any here who give nothing to the church, God, rebuke them by this sermon and cause them to see Christ gave all and that they need to give back. But God, beyond money, teach us to give ourselves to you. Let us hold nothing back. We're fools if we try to hold something back, not only because you know, but because you're worth more. Have mercy on us and teach us. Change our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.